0: Okay, so let's remember the visualization. Remember to put the people that you have difficulty with between yourself and the Buddha. And remember that those people are also looking towards the Three Jewels for refuge. our motivation. And as we sit here today, be aware of how our ability to sit here and share the Dharma is due to the efforts and therefore the kindness of so many living beings. Those living beings don't have to have us in mind when they do what they do that we benefit from. Nor do they even have to have the intention of benefiting us or others. But the bottom line is that without others' effort, we wouldn't have a chair or a cushion to sit on. We wouldn't have a computer to share the teachings through. We wouldn't have food to eat or a building to sit in or vehicles. or books, or anything that we use in our daily life. Because everything we use was made by other people. Even if we made something ourselves, like our own clothes, we didn't make the cloth. We didn't make the sewing machine. We didn't make the plastic and the metal that composed the sewing machine. So everything we have and make use of, in addition to everything we know and are able to do, came through other living beings. So just sit with that and let that into the mind. How dependent we are on others and thus how kind they've been to us. And as one way to repay that kindness to others, we want to aim for a full awakening where we will have the complete wisdom, compassion, and skillful means. To be able to benefit others by giving them the teachings and leading them out of samsara, And considering their overwhelming kindness to us in life after life, beginninglessly, then we take great joy in the idea of repaying that kindness and doing something really meaningful for all the kind sentient beings. So generate that motivation. Now, how people hear that motivation depends a lot on themselves and also the culture they were raised in. In some cultures, uh, you're raised to be aware of the kindness of others towards you, and uh, you're taught to repay that kindness. And so it isn't uh, felt as a heavy burden or an obligation. yeah. In other cultures, like our in the West, we're raised to be individuals, to think of ourselves first, and to see when, you know, very often we see other people's needs as impeding on our freedom. Yeah. And uh, we don't want to help. And we feel that when we hear teachings that others have been kind and and we should repay their kindness, we feel like somebody is doing a guilt trip on us. Okay? So this is our problem (laughs) if we hear the teachings like that. Because when you really sit there and do the meditation for repeatedly for a long period of time, and are really aware of the kindness of others, not just the kindness of your dear ones, but also the kindness of strangers and even the kindness of people you don't like. When you really sit with that, then you realize that I want to do something in return. This is not a burden. It is something that i'm glad that i can do because i really appreciate what others have done for me yeah so we have to see it in that light don't go back to if you were brought up with you know well somebody gave you a present so you better feel grateful and just because you were told to feel grateful you didn't um don't go back into that mentality. It's not what we're talking about here. Okay. But uh, when we can really see how we benefit from so many people, and that we don't even know those people, and that we haven't even thought to say thank you, then, you know, maybe we, we will learn something important about our lives, about how we often feel entitled to things, and uh, just take others' kindness for granted. So, for example, how many times have you uh, stopped your car when there's road work and said thank you to the guys working on the road? Ever done that? If you've lived here at the Abbey, yes, but before you lived here, how many times have you gone out to thank the garbage collector? When you're using a public bathroom at a train station or an airport and somebody's cleaning that bathroom, how often have we said thank you to that person for doing that? Yeah. So there's so many things in which we have benefited from others that we take for granted. But if they didn't do those jobs, we would be in dire straits. I was in Tel Aviv when the garba- garbage collectors went on strike and the garbage was collecting on the streets. Yeah. Then people started to appreciate the garbage collectors. Yeah. Of course, they were mad at them. You can't leave garbage. This is your job to do. But if you have a right kind of mind, you said, these people have been doing this work for a long time, and I've never even bothered to recognize what they're doing for me and show appreciation. Yeah because I really don't like when the streets are covered with garbage and the possibility of animals and disease is here. Okay? So, uh, you know, to be able to look around and see what we've, uh, how dependent we are on people. Yeah, Like, who made our shoes? In what country were our shoes made? What are the conditions in, the, in which those people worked? Okay. And then you look at whatever devices you have, and how many people from so many different countries were involved in creating all the parts for your device? Yeah. And what are, what are they doing now? what are their lives like yeah are they paid a, a reasonable wage are their kids healthy or are their kids sick yeah so to to think about the situation of others you know and don't see them as like far off and unrelated but very close, you know. Our shoes are the results of some of their their labors. Okay? So when you do this, it really brings a sense of closeness with others. And when we feel close to others, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels much better than just sticking our head in the sand and saying, Well, I don't know who they are, so who cares? Okay, so we have a very interesting question from yesterday afternoon. It's a little bit long, but I'll, I'll read the whole question because the person is making an argument here. So why is aversion given precedence over desire, grasping, and clinging? when both are considered ignorance. Why is the truth of the body that it is ugly and disgusting, aversion, rather than beautiful and grasping, leading to grasping and desire? This seems arbitrary and stupid to me. Moreover, we are socialized to see some of these bodily functions and secretions, etc., As disgusting. They are not in and of themselves anything other than what we impute. If I take apart a beautiful Ferrari, see its greasy engine parts, etc., perhaps it will appear ugly to some, though a mechanic might find it beautiful, as might a surgeon and a medical examiner of the human body. But that does not mean that when the Ferrari is fully assembled, it is not a magnificent machine. Sophia Loren is beautiful when she is seen as a whole and not dissected and reduced to a few secretions and entrails. Are parts more the truth than the whole? I am not convinced by this argument Mainly because it seems to rest on a faulty foundation, valuing aversion over desire, which seems arbitrary and nonsensical. Sounds good, huh? Right? Yeah? Huh? What are you talking about? I'm not Sophia Loren, but I'm beautiful. Yeah, and if you think I'm ugly, it's just your imputation. Actually, it's pure blindness. Okay. So, first of all, aversion is not given precedence over desire, grasping, and clinging. Okay. Um, Desire, grasping, and clinging, as those words are used here, are based on exaggeration of good qualities. Yeah. If those qualities, uh, if so- Sophia were, Lorraine were truly beautiful through and through, and not only when she was fully assembled would she look gorgeous, but also, uh, you know, if mentally dissected, uh, all the parts of her would be gorgeous. Yeah, so you would look at her spleen and say that spleen is more beautiful than anybody else's spleen. And that liver Oh Yeah. And that brain. Yeah, those gray contorted things, you know, that brain is gorgeous. Yeah, I think I fell in love with the brain. So if she were gorgeous through and through, every single part should appear that way. Now here, okay, when we're talking about aversion, we are not talking about afflictive aversion. Okay. We're talking about seeing things without the embellishment that our mind of craving, clinging, and attachment thrive on. Okay. So it's not that we look at the human body and go ew, ew, ew. I don't wanna sit in this room with all you people. you're just sacks of stinking rubbish. No, that's not <laughs> that's not realization of this meditation, so you're doing something wrong, yeah, but This meditation is done for a specific purpose. Yeah? And it's to counteract attachment and clinging. Yeah? And craving. Why? Because clinging and craving, first of all, are based on exaggeration. And second of all, when we follow them, We wind up creating a lot of negative karma. Okay. So if we're attached to something and we create negative karma regarding it, we lie to other people to get what we, to get that Ferrari. We cheat other people out of what the, you know, the true value of it because we want it. We, uh, you know, put down other people's vehicles and walk around with our nose in the air, you know, which you can easily do because it's a convertible. And, uh, you know, and, and it just gives rise to a lot of afflictions in our mind. And those afflictions we create negative karma by. You know, if your Ferrari gets dented, you go berserky. Yeah. If you have a VW bug that gets dented, you're not happy, but you don't go quite as crazy as your status symbol of a Ferrari, usually a bright red one. Yeah. As, you know, upset as you get when your status symbol is damaged. Okay? And then you say and do things that harm others and so on. So, in order to avoid that clinging and craving, we try and see something more realistic as it is. Now, it's true the body is not inherently foul. Okay? But conventionally speaking, yeah? Most people see it that way, okay? If we all stopped going to the bathroom and just went to the bathroom here in this room, okay, would we want to stay in this room to listen to a Dharma teaching? No. Okay, that doesn't mean we hate the body but we realize something that is dirty for what it is. Okay. And so we don't glorify the thing that produced all of that. Okay, are you getting what I'm saying? That this meditation's done for a specific reason, and it's to balance the mind out because when we have attachment, we create all sorts of negative karma. Okay, that's just in this lifetime that we create the negative karma. Okay, due to craving clinging. But what was the example of true origins? The example that the Buddha chose. Craving. Okay, why did did he choose craving? Because during our lives, craving skews our mind, so we don't see things accurately, and we act abominably, sometimes under the influence of craving. And at the time of death, craving becomes very intense, for ordinary beings. And we crave this body and to not be separated from it. And we crave not to be separated from our friends and relatives. We crave not to be separated from our whole ego identity and our reputation that we created with so much effort. And then, when it becomes obvious that we have to be separated from these things during the dying process, then we crave another body. So, we want another body that's like this, that is prone to the pain of birth, of sickness, of aging, and death. Okay. If you had a choice, would you take a body prone to birth, aging, sickness, and death? Is that the kind of body that's going to make you truly fulfilled and happy? Yeah. Does anybody go, Oh, I got sick. This is wonderful. I'm aging. This is fantastic. I'm on my deathbed. The optimum situation. No, nobody likes that. So when we have craving, we jump into another body just like this body. Okay. We jump into mental aggregates that are filled with the same afflictions that our previous mental aggregates were filled with. Okay, and so we cycle again and again and again. And when you want to be free of that cycling and all the misery it entails, and you see that craving is one of the chief things that makes that happen again and again, then craving is no longer your friend And you want to do what you can to lower your own degree of craving. And you see that by doing that, you have to see things more realistically. Okay. So it's just, you're not trying to create a sense of You're trying to see things realistically, and then all the craving Des- in desire, just goes, and you know your mind is much more sober. You can see things in a clearer light. You can make better decisions. Okay, when your mind is filled with craving, just look in your life at the decisions you've made, and the actions you've done, and the predicaments you've gotten yourself into. Okay, so then you can see why we do this meditation. Okay. It's, it's not favoring uh, aversion over desire and uh, craving. Of course, people may have their own opinions. It's completely up to us. The Buddha encouraged us to think about what he said and then decide for ourselves. But it's good to keep this in mind because if it doesn't make sense to you now, it might make sense to you later on. So, for example, yeah, if all of us had consistently followed our craving. Would any of us be sitting here in this room listening to dharma teachings right now? (laughs) She said, no way. If I had followed my craving and attachment, I would not have ordained. I would not have learned the dharma. I would not be here. Yeah? What about the rest of you? If you had followed your craving, and just followed the objects of desire and the things that appeared beautiful, would you still be here right now? No. We would all be off trying to get what we're craving. Or maybe enjoying being with the object we're craving. And underneath being anxious about, when is this going to end? Because we know that it can't last forever. Okay. okay, let's go back to the text. We're on page 26, the second paragraph. Okay, so in conclusion, Based on not knowing the four attributes of true dukkha, the four distorted conceptions arise in our mind one after the other. They give rise to afflictions which instigate disturbing mental, verbal, and physical actions, which in turn leave karmic seeds on our mind stream. Some of these karmic seeds ripen at the time of death and cause our next rebirth. Others ripen in our future lives, affecting our environment, habits, and the experiences we undergo. Okay, so do you see how the Buddha laid this out as a series of cause and effect, and cause and effect? Yeah? Start. It starts out, with our ignorance of the four attributes. Then that makes the four distorted conceptions arise. Then afflictions. Then disturbing mental, physical, and verbal actions, negative karma. Then that gives rise to the karmic seeds. Then that causes our next rebirth, and it causes experiences in our next rebirth. So there's a whole causal chain here that is very, very important to understand, and to be able to see in our own lives how it works, and to see that samsara is therefore undesirable in the long term. There may be respites and certain pleasures, but that doesn't make samsara hunky-dory. And when those respites and pleasures eventually give way to pain, then they aren't truly pleasure. Okay. They're just a temporary respite from misery. Okay. And we use that to generate the determination to be free from samsara. Okay. When we have that determination to be free in our mind, it helps us so much to be calmer in our lives. Okay? Because we see the importance of getting out of samsara. And that being in samsara as a whole is just really unsatisfactory. When that is a prevalent idea in our mind then when we receive criticism or things don't go our way or somebody gives us feedback we don't like you know or someone insults us it doesn't get to us because it seems so unimportant in fa- in the face of being in of in samsara Okay? So just like, um, you know, if, if you have COVID, you know, and you stub your toe, you realize you stub your toe, but you don't worry about it because you're more consumed with the idea that you have COVID and you want to get better. Okay, so, oh yeah, I stubbed my toe. Let's go on to something that's really important. So it becomes the same way. Oh, you know, some problem in this life is not such a big deal because being in samsara is a bigger deal. Yeah, and I have the chance to do what I can now to create the causes, to be free of it, and that's where I want to put my energies. Okay. so what was described is this is the meaning of being under the control of afflictions and polluted actions, and it clearly illustrates that we are not free to experience the joy and the fulfillment that we seek. We must understand the four distorted conceptions well in order to overcome them. Just as in ordinary warfare, one has to learn about one's enemies in order to defeat them. So we have to really look at those four distortions and how they manifest in our mind and how they operate and what they make us do and what they make us believe. Yeah, because, I mean, they can come fast and furious and we don't even recognize them. Okay? If you got the news today that somebody you love died, would you be shocked? Yeah. Why are we shocked when we know that things are changing moment by moment and don't remain the same? Why are we shocked when we know that everybody faces death? Why are we shocked? Because we know that intellectually, but we don't know it here. So we're consistently getting shocked and then battling the reality of the situation. This shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be this way. So the four attributes of true dukkha build on one another. Our bodies and minds change moment by moment. This is their nature. Once they arise, no further cause is needed to make them change. Why? Because they arose due to to causes and conditions, and the causes and conditions are are also changing, so the resultant thing is changing too. Okay. Knowing this contradicts the belief that they are static and unchanging. Impermanent things are produced by causes and conditions. Do you feel like you are produced by causes and conditions? Yeah? You're just your gut feeling about yourself being here. Do you think, oh, I'm produced by causes and conditions? Yeah, I exist only because of the causes and conditions that produce me. No, we don't feel that. We feel, I am here. Yeah. And I am unchanging. And there's a real essence of me So our aggregates are controlled by their causes, afflictions and karma, which are ultimately rooted in ignorance. When you look at your body, do you say this is under the the influence of afflictions and karma? Did you ever wonder why you're in this body and not some other body? Why am I in this body and not a body of light that doesn't get old and sick and die? Why am I in this body? Okay, well, I created the cause for it, and I wanted it. The time of death, I wanted it. I got what I wanted. Okay? Anything caused by or rooted in ignorance is unsatisfactory. This is the pervasive dukkha of conditioning. Once we understand this, no matter how beautiful, pleasurable, and enticing things may appear, we know they are not worthy of our clinging to them. Okay. If you see this, Absolutely delicious-looking chocolate cake. But you know it's laced with poison. Yeah? Are you going to eat it? doesn't matter how beautiful it looks. You know it is not to be trusted. Yeah. And you don't eat it. So you avoid that pain. The first two attributes, impermanence and dukkha, center on the aggregates being dependent on causes and conditions. They lead to understanding the last two attributes that deny the existence of any kind of independent self or person that is independent of causes and conditions okay so we aren't free from these aggregates so how could there we aren't free from these aggregates so how could there be a permanent unifying independent self that is a different entity from the aggregates it's clear that we are related to this aggregate these aggregates we cannot prevent our body and mind from aging and dying so how could there be a self sufficient substantially existent person that controls the aggregates so these are good questions yeah when we realize yeah that our aggregates are under the influence of afflictions and karma then to say Well, then how could there be a permanent, unitary, independent self that is totally unrelated to these aggregates when I'm influenced by these aggregates and I consider them mine? It's a good question to ask ourselves. And when we realize that we can't prevent our bodies from aging and dying, then how in the world could there be a self-sufficient, substantially existent self like I think I am? Because if that self existed, I should be able to prevent the body from aging and the mind from going bananas over some small thing. But I can't. Yeah? Whether we initially approach the four attributes from the viewpoint of reasoning or meditation, we must later combine the knowledge gained from both of them to attain a yogic, direct reliable cognizer that realizes impermanence, dukkha, emptiness, and selflessness. So some traditions emphasize approaching this through reasoning, Other uh, traditions emphasize approaching this through mindfulness meditation and observing with very clear wisdom what's happening in the body. Either way, it doesn't matter. We have to bring them together so that we see what the truth of our aggregates is and that they are not any kind of self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So this mind, um, the yogic direct perceiver that uh, we are aspiring for, uh, is a mental consciousness that is a unity of serenity and insight that directly realizes these four attributes. Okay, So this is the common presentation for all the Buddhist schools. So reflecting on the four attributes of true dukkha, makes us yearn to be free from our polluted aggregates and to attain nirvana, a state of true freedom. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Imagine having a body that doesn't have aches and pains, you know, that doesn't get injured in accidents, that doesn't develop headaches, and stomach aches and arthritis, yeah, that doesn't succumb to cancer or COVID or kidney disease. That would be kind of nice, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, we're trying to see the aggregates as they are. Reflecting on the four attributes of true dukkha makes us yearn to be free from our polluted aggregates and to attain nirvana, a state of true freedom. The practice of the four establishments of mindfulness is one way to realize the four attributes of true dukkha and to overcome the four distorted conceptions. So if you want to learn more about this Um, I mean, the the rest of the paragraph explains it in brief. But look at volume four, the next volume, called Following uh, in the Buddha's Footsteps. And there's a whole, you know, lot about the former establishments of mindfulness, which is a really wonderful practice. Mindfulness of the body overcomes holding it as attractive. Mindfulness of feelings overcomes seeing the aggregates as pleasurable and desirable. Mindfulness of the mind counteracts grasping a permanent, unitary, independent self. And mindfulness of phenomena leads us to understand selflessness. The realization of subtle selflessness And subtle emptiness frees us from the bonds of cyclic existence. Okay, so there's a little chart that follows. That's very helpful if you can memorize that. Okay. Actually, if you meditate on it, you don't have to try to memorize it. You will remember it. Okay, then a reflection. So remember a situation in which you had strong animosity towards someone. Observe how you believe that person to be fixed and unchanging. It seems as if all he has ever been or done is condensed as that horrible person who harmed you. Like I told you the story of the person who canceled our, our uh, session that we were leading at a conference. That's the sum total of somebody's life. Okay, then to point two, ask yourself, is this true? Is this person frozen in time like this? Or does he change depending on causes and conditions? Is there an independent person who always has been and always will be the image you cur- currently had of him, have of him? So, even when that person dies and their continuum is reborn, are they going to still be exactly the same as you see them now? Seeing that person is neither permanent nor independent. Allow your anger to dissipate. Enjoy the feeling of being free from hurt and anger. Wouldn't that be nice? Possible. Okay, now the four attributes of true origins. This is the second truth. So true origins, afflictions, and karma are the primary, are the principal cause of true dukkha. Actions come from afflictions, especially craving and ignorance, the root of all afflictions. Buddhist tenant systems have various ideas of what ignorance is and how it relates to the view of a personal identity. But these will be explained later when we get more into the tenant systems. A prominent example of afflictions is craving, a strong liking for an object, an unwillingness to let it go. Looking closely at our life experiences, we see that much of our suffering is due to craving, holding on to something or someone outside of ourselves as the source of happiness, security, and success. Okay, so that, yeah, yeah. That this external things become the meaning of our life. Yeah. So we want possessions. To have possessions, we need money. To have money, we need a career. To have a career, you have to dress appropriately for your career, you have to look appropriate for your career, you have to drive a car that is appropriate for your career. You have to have a spouse that looks like they belong in that same social class as the people in your career. You have to take care of your children so that they also fit into how the people who do what you do look. Because if you don't do that, your boss may not consider you qualified. Okay. So one of the guys in, the, in our uh, Dharma group in Seattle was a doctor. So, you know, doctors are supposed to drive certain kind of cars. He had some old beat-up red car, and he didn't care at all. Yeah. But I think some of the people uh, when he went on hospital rounds may have commented on it. <laughs> Craving creates feelings of dissatisfaction and inadequacy, doesn't it? Yeah. When we're all supposed to have certain possessions and look a certain way and do certain activities and your life just doesn't turn out like that, then you feel dissatisfied and you feel inadequate. What did I do wrong? Look at all my colleagues. They're enjoying this and that and they're doing this and that. Yeah, And somehow, My dream didn't happen, you know. I got married. It was perfect. It was wonderful. And then my spouse came down with a severe illness. And so now all the money goes for the illness. There's no parties. There's no going out. Because I have to, you know, I stay home and take care. You know, and so, oh, my whole life is a failure. My parents really wanted me to be a big success. And now it just didn't turn out. Yeah, so what happened? I'm inadequate. Okay, so that no matter what we put accomplish or possess, or who loves and appreciates us, we still feel discontent pervaded by the longing for more and better, more and better. Or, angry at the world for not giving us what we think we should have. Okay, so the four attributes of true origins are cause, origin, strong producers, and conditions. And so, By the example of craving as the principal true origin, we show, uh, we illustrate these four uh, attributes of true craving, of true origins. Okay, Okay. so the first syllogism craving and karma are the causes of dukkha because they are the chief cause of dukkha. That doesn't sound like a really strong syllogism does it, (laughs) okay? But uh, the point of it is to see how cravings and karma is a cause of dukkha. So, and it's the point of, of this particular one is to show that our aggregates have causes, that things just do not happen randomly without a cause. So our suffering is not haphazard, but has causes, craving, and karma. Okay, so our birth isn't just haphazard. We're not born who we are just, you know, because the stork dropped the ball or the bag when he shouldn't have. Okay, there's specific causes why we were born who we are. Okay. Under the control of ignorance, we crave to experience pleasant feelings and crave not to experience painful ones. True or not true? True. This leads us to act, creating karma. Craving also spurs different karmas to ripen into their results, especially during the dying process. So this attribute, this first attribute, refutes the idea that dukkha is random or causeless, as asserted by the material, materialists, that it was a, a, a group of, of religious practitioners, or rather a group of skeptics at the time of the Buddha. Their, their Sanskrit name is Chavarka, Chavarka, Chavaka. Um, uh, it's a philosophical school in ancient India. So, by rejecting the law of karma and its effects, yeah, and by saying that we're not going to believe anything that we cannot detect with our senses, sound familiar? Okay. Uh, you know, anything we can't see with our, our senses and we can't see cause and effect, how this cause produces that effect. Therefore, you know, we're just discrediting these things. Okay? So these materialists, many of them, denied ethical responsibility because they don't believe in karma. And they lived hedonistic lifestyles because they don't believe in future lives. They don't believe that their actions have any kind of ethical uh, import at all. So they indulged in sense pleasures with little thought of the long-term effects of their actions on themselves or others. So we know people who live like this, don't we? Yeah. And like I told you, at one of the Mind life conferences I, I attended in 1989, there were these scientists, incredibly intelligent, well-educated people, who thought, you know, unless we can prove it by what we see and through the tools that we have, uh, you know, we're not even going to accept the existence of consciousness because everything has to be reduced to matter. Mm -hmm. So craving, so that's the first one, yeah, yeah that dukkha has causes. It's not just a roll of dice. So craving and karma are the origins of dukkha because they repeatedly produce all of the diverse forms of dukkha. Okay. So afflictions and karma create not just a portion of our mental and physical misery, but all of but all of it in the past, present and future. Understanding this dispels the idea that dukkha comes from only one cause, such as an external deity or a primal cosmic matter. Okay? So if you assert I was created and the unit, by you know this external deity, and everything that happens in my life is his will so there's only one cause of what happens to me <coughs> okay or a primal cause uh, matter so this was uh, the belief of some of the samkhya sects in in ancient india that there was one you know primal substance or karmic or, or causal cosmic substance, out of which everything materialized and everything dissolved back in. So again, if there's only one cause, you run into some logical problems because one cause, if there's only one cause and there's no other causes and conditions, then what can affect that one cause to make it produce something? Okay? Because if it's going to produce something other than, you know, just the continuity of what it is, you know, the continuity of what it is, is, you know, because it's changing moment by moment. But if it's going to contribute to the creation of something new, there better be other causes and conditions that make it transform or grow into that new thing. Okay? So if dukkha rested on only one cause, cooperative conditions would be unnecessary, in which case either that cause would never produce a result because it wouldn't depend on causes, on on conditions, uh, so it could never be changed to produce a result, or it would never stop producing a result because if it didn't depend on causes and conditions, or the absence of that condition wouldn't stop the production of what it was. Okay, so if the the seeds, if the plants didn't uh, just rely on sunshine and water and uh, fertilizer, they could grow in the desert, they could grow in the snow, they could grow anywhere because you didn't need any kind of cooperative conditions for them to grow. Okay? And they would just keep growing, even if the conditions changed because, you know, they, well, they wouldn't have those conditions to change. So if a sprout depended only on a seed and nothing else, the seed would continuously grow because the change of seasons would not affect it at all. Or, it would not grow at all because the presence of warm weather, water, and fertilizer would not affect it. Dukkha depends on the coming together of many changeable factors. It is not predestined or fated. Okay, so these kind of arguments, we may have not thought in that way. You know, I mean, like none of us would think, oh, a cause would just keep producing without ever stopping and keep producing the same thing. We never think that, yeah. But if we think that there, we don't need conditions for a cause to change, then the logical result from that is that either that cause would not grow into the result, or if it could grow into the result without the need for conditions, then it would just keep growing into that result with no foreseeable end because no conditions or the lack of any conditions could make it stop growing and producing. Okay? So it's, it's a, we may not have thought like this before, but if we see there is this logical connection there, okay? Seeing the diverse forms of dukkha that sentient beings repeatedly experience under the control of afflictions and karma, can be shocking at first. If we really think of all the different unsatisfactory experiences that exist just on planet Earth right now, you know, it's beyond what what we can hold. Okay. However, since they are conditioned phenomena, when conditions change or cease, dukkha will similarly change or cease. Okay? So things are always in flux. So it doesn't just mean that dukkha, unpleasant things, uh, are are impermanent or or that— sorry, it doesn't just mean that things we consider pleasurable don't last, but also things we consider unpleasurable are not going to last. Okay, but all of them, pleasurable or unpleasurable, are unsatisfactory because none of them bring any kind of lasting peace or uh, sense of of well-being in our hearts. Okay, number three, craving and karma are strong producers because they act forcefully to produce strong dukkha. Okay, so we're not talking about piddly, dink things here. Yeah, they're strong. We tend to think that our problems come from causes outside of ourselves, an external creator or another person, or the government, or, you know, some institution, or something, okay? When people experience illness or accidents, Yeah, when some people experience illness or accidents, they attribute it to God who willed that event. On a more mundane level, we blame our unhappiness on other people or external circumstances. Yeah, this person made a mistake and gave me the wrong medicine. Yeah, that person criticized me or criticized my loved ones. Okay? So, it's always other people. This way of thinking locks us into a victim mentality where we believe we are unable to change our experiences because they are caused by someone or something outside of ourselves. Understanding the third attribute dispels the notion that dukkha arises from discordant causes. For example, the motivation of an external creator. Okay. So, so far, we have to see things under, uh, arise from causes. Okay. That um, these causes, produ- you know, produce a strong result. And depend on conditions. And that the conditions have to be the kinds of conditions that have the potency to produce that kind of result. Okay. So daisies grow from daisy seeds and you need a certain kind, a certain temperature for them to sprout. Yeah. You can't use just any kind of seed, and it can't just be any kind of temperature. So things have to be concordant. Okay? So afflictions and karma bring intense dukkha in both lower and higher realms, and they forcefully keep us bound in samsara. When we understand that afflictions and karma are the actual origins of our problem, We accept responsibility for our actions and our lives. We become empowered knowing that we have the ability to change our situation and create the causes for the happiness we want. Having But once the karma has ripened, once the cause has started to ripen, we can't undo things, you know. Once you've broken your leg, you can't uh, uh, do away with the cause that made you break your leg because it's already broken, okay? So if we want to create other causes and conditions, we have to do it before the result comes. Yeah, no time machines exist. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we become empowered knowing that we have the ability to change our situation and create the causes for the happiness we want. Having correctly identified the origins of our misery, we learn, reflect on, and meditate on the Dharma to counteract afflictions and purify karma. Understanding this stimulates us to dispel these origins of karma, of dukkha. Okay, so if we really understand this, how causes, uh, uh, how afflictions and karma are the causes and conditions, we get very motivated to purify our previously created destructive karma, and to create more and more virtuous karma. Okay, so we'll continue on uh, and finish this section. So point four. Craving and karma are conditions because they also act as the cooperative conditions that give rise to dukkha. Okay, so craving and karma are not only the primary causes of dukkha, but also the cooperative conditions that enable karma to ripen. When craving manifests in our mind, it acts like fertilizer. Enabing, enabling karmic seeds to ripen. Understanding, well, let's give some examples of that, okay? So you have, uh, uh, let's say somebody in a previous life was, I'll just make some very simple example. Karma is much more complicated than this. But let's say somebody in a previous life was driving recklessly, they didn't care about, you know, they were just out for a joyride, you know, like a, yeah, you're out for a joyride. Like we, we heard about that crash that occurred in Singapore with those young adults, you know, kind of out on New Year's driving at top speed around the block and then crashing. Okay. So you did that in one life. So you have that karma to, uh, you know, die in an accident, even though you may have a lifespan uh, to live long, because that's exactly what your reckless behavior caused to happen to the other person who got killed when you banged into them. Okay. This is the previous life. So you have the karma set up for something kind of similar to happen to you in the next life. Okay. Now that karma still happens to ripen. It still needs to ripen and to ripen, it needs cooperative conditions. Okay. If you drink and drive, is it going to be more likely that you get an in, into an accident than if you don't drink and drive? Yes. So drinking becomes, you know, or, or shooting drugs or whatever, um, be, can become that cooperative condition that makes that karma from your previous life ripen so that in this lifetime, you find yourself in a in a uh, traffic, you know, in an accident. Okay? And, y- you know, and you may die from that accident due to drinking because, you know, you die because of the previous karma. Okay? But the cooperative condition is the drinking in this life. Okay? So, you know, lots of times we can see um, things in our life where we made what seemed to be a very small, insignificant decision that caused something unexpected to happen that either is desirable or undesirable. And that set in motion a whole bunch of other things. Yeah? So it could be something undesirable, Yeah, You made a small decision, you got in this car instead of another car, you went to the Twin Towers on, you know, the the September 11th instead of on September 10th. Small insignificant things, yeah, that can act as one of many conditions that make a previously created karma ripen. Now, when we see things like this, it does not mean that people deserve to suffer. That is not what we're saying. Repeat. We are not saying that people deserve to suffer or that they were bad people because they created some kind of negative karma in a previous life. Okay, This is extremely important. We are not judging the person. And we are not saying that, you know, they deserve harm. Okay? We're simply saying, how do you account for something like this happening? Okay? But there's other times in our lives, yeah, where maybe, you know, you're on a plane and you don't usually talk to people, but you wind up talking to the person next to you on a plane. And you become good friends as time goes on, you stay in touch, you become good friends. And then one thing leads to another, and you know, you're able to work on projects together and really help each other. And, you know, again, one small thing that you did in your life then has this uh, ricocheting event. So we, if we look at our lives, we can see these kinds of things. Yeah? It's really, it's quite fascinating. How did all of us meet the Dharma? I mean, I, if I just talk about myself. So you guys are hearing all about my life, but that's because I have the microphone. Okay? So uh, next time you can teach the course and then we'll hear all about your life. But the re- reason I use my examples is because they happen to me and then... They're, you can see that they're not something that that made up. That made up. Okay. How how did I meet the Dharma? Well, th- and this is interesting. I um. I traveled overland to India in 1973, and one of my friends that I had met in Israel had gone to some kind of uh, ashram and and meditation class. And so when I met her um, afterwards in India, she was telling me, oh, you know, meditation's kind of cool. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, that sounds fine. Uh, what else, you know, there's lots of cool things when you're a hippie traveler. And I happened, after that, I went to India. I mean, I went to from ne- India to Nepal, and, uh, and I trekked up in the Himalaya Mountains, Okay. I just happened the furthest extent on my whole year and a half of traveling. The furthest away I got from home was this village called Tami in the Himalayas. Okay. Nice village. Yeah. Poor. Yeah. Came down, saw these Tibetan Buddhist things in, in, um, in Kathmandu, bought some interesting, you know, the rice draw, the rice print drawings, went home, put the rice print drawings all around my flat so that my friends would know that I had gone to India because in those days hardly anyone went to India and I would have status. Yeah. So I hung them all over the place. Never thought anything about Buddhism, you know? That, all that whole experience did not uh, connect me to the dharma, okay? It may have ripened some seeds because I thought those paintings were kind of interesting, but that's it. Okay, so came back to the States, went back to graduate school, started working as a teacher, and then summer vacation came, and I lived in L.A., And we often went to the Bodhi Tree Bookstore on Melrose. You know, it was kind of that, you know, the cool, hip bookstore. So I went one Sunday to the the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, and I'm looking at different stuff, and there's this flyer, one sheet of paper that somebody, who I didn't know, hung up on a wall, And it said, oh, there's a meditation course at Lake Arrowhead. And before the meditation course, this lama is giving a couple of talks in L.A. Well, my friend said meditation was cool. I wasn't working. Why not go? Okay. That's how I met the dharma. Okay. One person... Happened to print out flyers and put them in that bookstore when I happened to be there. Yeah, that's it. If she hadn't put that flyer there, I hate to think of what I would be doing right now. Okay, so just small conditions change. Yeah, and then there you go, and you're, you know, the whole trajectory of your life completely changes. Yeah. My parents wished I didn't go to that bookstore. <laughs> but what to do? They were eventually happy. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, okay, so understanding that dukkha depends on causes and conditions dispels the notion that it is fixed and unalterable and counteracts the idea that dukkha is fundamentally permanent but temporarily fleeting. That is, thinking our unsatisfactory state cannot, become, cannot be overcome even though there are temporary times of reprieve. And so there are people who feel that way about their lives. You know, my life is totally full of pain, unsatisfactory, a disaster. I might have a good meal and a friend here and there, but ultimately my life is miserable. And that that tends to be the view that many people have before they suicide which is a real tragedy okay so seeing that your overall situation cannot be overcome because you aren't recognizing that there's causes and conditions that can be removed yeah so even though you experience a little happiness here and there the whole thing is not worthwhile Okay, and that's a tragedy when one's mind gets into that state where you just say, I am so miserable, and there is absolutely no way to change my situation. Yeah? So, but when we're aware, when we've thought about this, then we understand that when the causes and conditions are eliminated, the resultant unsatisfactory and suffering experiences will also cease. Knowing this brings resilience to our Dharma practice, because we know that our situation is not a given. And you know that all the suffering in the world is not a given. It's created by causes and conditions. Those causes and conditions can be eliminated. Okay, So contemplating these four attributes strengthens our determination to abandon true origins. But really, you know, think about this. Make examples from your own life. That's the real key to understanding these things. And try and follow the logic in them, even though that way of thinking may initially be unfamiliar to you.